Last two weeks in the House, the House came back on Thursday, January 21, to vote on a waiver to allow retired U.S. Army General Lloyd Austin to serve as Secretary of Defense. The waiver is necessary because current law prohibits anyone who has not been separated from military service for at least seven years from serving as Secretary of Defense, and Austin retired from service in 2016. The resolution passed by a vote of 326 to 78, and then they were done and went home, and the House was out of session last week. This week in the House, they'll come back to work on Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At some point during the week, the House will likely consider a budget resolution for FY 2022. Last two weeks in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Wednesday, January 20, and voted to confirm Avril Danica Haynes to be Director of National Intelligence. Confirmation vote was 84 to 10. On Thursday, the 21st, the Senate voted on a waiver to allow retired U.S. Army General Lloyd Austin to serve as Secretary of Defense. The vote on the waiver was 69 to 27. On Friday, the Senate voted to confirm retired U.S. Army General Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense. Confirmation vote was 93 to 2, with only Josh Hawley of Missouri and Mike Lee of Utah voting in opposition. Then the Senate went home. The Senate returned on Monday, January 25. First up was a vote to confirm Janet Yellen as Secretary of the Treasury. She was confirmed by a vote of 84 to 15. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm Tony Blinken as Secretary of State. That vote to confirm was 78 to 22. Then Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul offered a resolution to declare the trial of former President Trump unconstitutional. Since he is a former president and the Constitution is silent on the question of whether or not a former president can be impeached by the House and tried by the Senate, Democrats offered a motion to table, that is to kill the Paul resolution. The vote to table was 55 to 45. In other words, 45 Republican senators went on record and supported the idea that holding an impeachment trial for a man who has left office is unconstitutional. Then the Senate took up S. Res. 16, a resolution to provide for related procedures concerning the article of impeachment against former President Trump. Under the terms of the resolution, the summons to the impeachment would be issued to former President Trump, provided that he may have until 12 p.m. on Tuesday, February 2nd, to file his answer with the Secretary of the Senate. The House of Representatives may have until 12 p.m. on Monday, February 8th, to file its response with the Secretary of the Senate. If the House of Representatives wishes to file a, a trial brief, it shall be filed by 10 a.m. on Tuesday, February 2nd. If former President Trump wishes to file a trial brief, it shall be filed by 10 a.m. on Monday, February 8th. The House of Representatives may file a rebuttal brief no later than 10 a.m. on Tuesday, February 9th, and the trial will commence on Tuesday, February 9th. Under the terms of the resolution, in addition to addressing the charge of incitement to insurrection, the two parties should include in their trial briefs, in their trial briefs, excuse me, and should also be prepared to address at trial the question of whether or not former President Trump is subject to the jurisdiction of a court of impeachment for acts committed as president of the United States, notwithstanding the expiration of his term in said office. Resolution passed by a vote of 83 to 17. And the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Alejandro Mayorkas to be Secretary of Homeland Security. Cloture was invoked by a vote of 55 to 42, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. That'll be a roll call vote on confirmation of Alejandro Mayorkas to be Secretary of Homeland Security. The rest of the week will likely be taken up with more confirmations of the Biden cabinet. On Tuesday, 
Peter P.M. Buttigieg, Biden's nominee to serve as Secretary of Transportation, will have a confirmation vote on the Senate floor. Beyond that, we're not exactly sure what the floor schedule will be. At some point, the Senate is likely to take up a budget resolution. Now to the Executive Order Palooza. If the Guinness Book of World Records had a category for signed most executive orders in first 10 days, Joe Biden would be there. Despite rhetoric saying he would seek unity and bipartisanship, Biden's pen has been exceedingly active. Clearly, he's not waiting around for bipartisanship. He's doing everything he can by executive order or executive action. Biden has signed 28 executive orders during his first 10 days in office. That's compared to former President Trump, who signed seven executive orders during the month of January 2017. Former President Obama, who signed nine in January 2009, and former President George W. Bush, who signed all of two during January of 2001. These orders include having the U.S. rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, halting work on the Keystone XL pipeline and throwing 11,000 workers onto the unemployment rolls in the process, overturning the ban on travel from certain nations where terrorism is a concern, repealing the Mexico City policy, strengthening DACA, and levying a mask mandate on public travel, among other things. He went so far so fast on so many things that in one of those rare, even a stopped clock is right twice a day moments, even the editorial board of the New York Times got into it, urging Biden to, quote, ease up, unquote, on the signings, calling the executive actions, quote, a flawed substitute for legislation, end quote. On the impeachment trial, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell finally came to an agreement to govern the process and procedure of the impeachment trial for former President Trump. The senators have now been sworn in, and the trial will commence in earnest on Tuesday, February 9th. Vermont Democrat Senator Patrick Leahy, as the longest-serving member of the majority and therefore the president pro tem of the Senate, will preside. Why isn't the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, presiding? Doesn't the Constitution say that the Chief Justice shall preside over an impeachment trial of a president? Well, yes, it does. But this is not an impeachment trial of a president. It's an impeachment trial of a former president. And John Roberts is a man who fears putting the Supreme Court in the middle of any political controversy the way a vampire fears a cross. So he was going to use any means possible to evade that particular duty. Now to the latest on the Biden coronavirus relief package. Despite President Biden's campaign rhetoric promising efforts to seek unity, his allies on Capitol Hill have made clear their idea of unity is not the same as what most Americans would consider unity. To it, their idea of unity is agree with us and we'll all be unified. With a five-seat margin in the House and a Senate split 50-50, you'd think they'd be making real efforts at bipartisanship. Not so. Not at all. Biden opened the bidding at $1.9 trillion on a coronavirus relief package. That's a third larger than the entire annual discretionary budget of the federal government. And Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, the chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus in the House, says that's too little. She wants to up that number to three or four trillion dollars. Last week, Majority Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi made clear their tolerance for Republican resistance has reached its limit less than 10 days into the Biden presidency. Rather than continue negotiating in public with the Republicans over the parameters of their proposed coronavirus relief package, they're looking instead to employ the budget reconciliation process, which would allow them to pass legislation through both houses with just a simple majority. 
We've seen budget reconciliation before. Democrats used it in 2010 to pass portions of Obamacare. Republicans used it in 2017 to try to repeal portions of Obamacare and to pass the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Under the rules of the reconciliation process, the House and Senate first must pass identical budget resolutions instructing authorizing committees to pass legislation pegged to certain dollar amounts. In this case, the budget resolution would direct committees to draft legislation that would add no more than $1.9 trillion to the debt over 10 years. Once that budget resolution passes both houses, the individual committees would then take their pieces of the larger bill and come up with the details relevant to their jurisdictions. Then all those individual bills would be put back together again in a manner that reconciled them to the original budget resolution. That bill, known as a reconciliation bill, would then go to the floor of the House and then to the floor of the Senate. It would not be subject to filibuster, so it needs only 51 votes to pass. Now, here's the catch. In exchange for the relative additional freedom of not having to meet the 60-vote threshold, the subject matter of a reconciliation bill is severely limited. The bill can only deal with three things, taxes, spending, and debt. Any provision in the bill must have a significant impact on taxes, spending, or debt. One of the things that's part of Biden's proposed $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package is a raise in the federal minimum wage to $15 per hour. That is a policy change. It has nothing to do with taxes or spending or the debt. So there are very serious doubts that a provision changing the federal minimum wage to $15 per hour could be included in a reconciliation bill. The person who makes that determination historically is the Senate parliamentarian. Some ultra-liberals on Capitol Hill are already urging Schumer to be prepared to ignore such a determination from the parliamentarian. If she announces that Democrats cannot include a minimum wage increase in a reconciliation bill because it's outside the scope of the reconciliation process, they argue, Schumer should just say, well, that's her opinion. We think differently. And since she's just a staffer with no legal authority, we're going to thank her for advice and then ignore it. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because of a hitch that we're about to discuss. That is the Mansion Cinema Conundrum. As we've discussed, the Senate is now split 50-50. And we know that under the Constitution, the President of the Senate, that is Vice President Kamala Harris, is authorized to cast a vote to break a tie. But remember, the Senate is split 50-50. That means that on any given day, on any given vote, if all 50 Republicans show up and vote no, then all 50 Democrats must show up and vote yes in order for the vice president to be able to cast that tie-breaking vote. What if one or two or maybe even three Democrats fail to vote with their Democrat colleagues? Then the motion would fail and the vice president wouldn't have a chance to cast a tie-breaking vote because there would be no tie. Consequently, the vote of any individual Democratic senator becomes enormously important. Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona are two Democrats to keep an eye on. Each has said publicly that they do not support the idea of doing away with the legislative filibuster, and each has held firm so far, even under increasing pressure from their colleagues. On Thursday, Vice President Harris made a mistake. West Virginia is a state that voted for President Trump by 70 to 27%. Think about that for a moment. Joe Biden won less than a third of the vote there. Politically, it costs Senator Manchin absolutely nothing to oppose Biden. In fact, it probably strengthens Manchin politically to be seen as opposing Biden. So what did Harris do? She did an interview with the West Virginia TV station where she put pressure on Manchin to support the Biden administration's coronavirus relief proposal. 
That's the kind of thing you do to put pressure on members of the opposition party, not your own party. And you certainly don't do it without first giving the targeted member a heads up, except that no one in the White House thought to give Manchin's office a call to let the senator know that Harris would be showing up on Huntington television. He was not too pleased. The following day, Manchin appeared on West Virginia television himself and said, quote, we're going to try to find a bipartisan pathway forward, but we need to work together. That's not a way of working together, end quote. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington Report for this week.